Welcome to North Star Big Book. My name is Carly Israel, and I'm a recovered alcoholic. My sobriety date is January 27th, 1999, and I am so excited to share my love of the Big Book with you. If you would like to come on and be a guest and share in an episode a part of the book that you love so other people can feel that light and that hope, please go on to carlyisrael.com and message me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, I am so happy to have my new friend via Zoom, Shelly. Will you please join and tell everybody who you are and where you're calling from? Hello, everyone. I'm Shelly, and I'm an alcoholic. I am calling in from North Olmsted, Ohio, which is a western suburb of Cleveland. Um, crazy weather right now, but uh, that's it is where I live. Um, What's your sobriety I'm, date? I'm, I'm sorry? Sobriety date. Sobriety date is 8-9 of 18. So awesome. I have two and a half years. Yay. And what pages did you choose today? I chose pages 35 through 38. Why? They are a few of my favorite pages because it, it focuses on the insanity of the disease. Mm. Which is really the real problem, right? When I got here... I thought I was crazy because I'd been to so many psychiatrists and everyone, my nickname was crazy Carly. So I knew I was crazy, right? <laughs> I'm sure you could have been crazy Shelly, but um, I, yeah, absolutely. Right. But I didn't understand that it was not about crazy. It was because we were crazy. We were mentally ill when it right. came to alcohol and the truth. And I did not know that. And it wasn't until someone took me in the book that I understood it. So I'm really grateful you chose these pages. I have a question before we start. Did you get introduced to the book right away or did it take you a little bit of time and sobriety to find someone that took you to the book? I was introduced to the book pretty much right away. You're lucky. My my sponsor um, was a big book person and she took me through with the step book and the big book simultaneously. And I have to ask you selfishly, are you sponsoring? Because I'm always looking for women to to give other women to. Yes, I sponsor. Awesome. I will send them your way. Okay, so let's go. So what part are we going to start on? Um, We are going to start on page 35, uh, the first full paragraph. Okay, you start and you go ahead. And by the way, every single page of this chapter, more about alcoholism, my original sponsor that took me through the book to really highlight this talk to me about that, that our mind is the problem. And at the top of this page in big letters, I wrote stone cold sober just before we drink. And that is one of those general concepts in AA that blew my mind because yeah. I would think about it and I'm like, what do you mean? And then he was like, no, Every single one of us that picks up a drink does it completely sober. So our right. problem isn't alcohol. Right. Which is it's our shocking. Thinking. It's our right? thinking. It's our thinking. Okay, go ahead. Okay. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which has brought him into the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? 
All right, so I want to stop you right there. I have a couple of things written down here. So throughout this chapter, I wrote this again and again, and I wrote it right here. When you first read what sort of thinking, and I like double mm-hmm. underline that word thinking, because we're not even talking about drinking right now. Right. Right. And I wrote on the side, believe the lie. And I wrote not about drinking anymore. So this is the lie that I can do this or no yep. one will know, or it's not going to matter. And what I find really interesting today is that I can believe the lie in sobriety about things that want to remove me from the work. So I can mm-hmm. believe, right. I don't need to do my meditation. I don't need to send that inventory. I don't need to go to that meeting. And that's the mental obsession that's trying to convince me that I've got this. Right. Right. Exactly. And, but you know what else? Have you ever seen it? Cause I couldn't see it with my own alcoholism because I was in it. But like, have you ever watched a friend or someone you care about go back into a horrible relationship? And you're like, yeah. what are they thinking? Right? right. Because you know, it's in their mind. That's the problem. And it's the same thing with us. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. I it keep is. going. Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This oh, man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had commendable World War record. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. I want to stop you right there. So I underlined in a few years, and Mm -hmm. I wrote above that by age 37. So he was 35 when he started drinking, 37 when he's so intoxicated, he's violent and entering an asylum. And what I want you to understand, and for other listeners, is I got sober when I was 19. And there was nobody at the emergency room where they pumped my stomach or my parents who were waiting for that call that I was not alive anymore, Mm -hmm. that thought I was too young to die. But when I got into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, there was a lot of um, resistance about my age of could I really be an alcoholic, which is such a yucky thing to hear. Like, it's hard Mm -hmm. enough to come here than to hear, like, are you really one of us? But what's so interesting is he only drank for two years, right? Right. But because of his age, it didn't look as bad. But like for what I want to really remind all of us is this guy drank for two years and he became violent when intoxicated to the point where they had to lock him up. So it doesn't matter how long you drink or how often you drink. It just matters what happens to us. Right. And it also demonstrates the progression of the disease. Yes. Will you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. The, the, this is a progressive disease. And say I am two and a half years sober. If I would pick up now, I would not pick up where I left off. I would pick up where my disease has progressed to. And frankly, I don't want to find out where that is. It's terrifying. You know, once in a while, I actually think about it, not for like fun, but like to think about how this disease is progressive. So because of Alcoholics Anonymous, the steps in God, I am a sober mother today. I have three children. And so the things that I was willing to do right before I got sober in order to like live that miserable life and the things I would have to do now if I went back out are so different in the progression. I mean, I would have to sell my body and stand on the street and steal and be homeless because the things that I would have to do today as a 41-year-old woman who is a single mother who wouldn't be able to take care of her children would lose everything that alone shows how this disease has progressed. And I've not touched a drop of alcohol in 22 years. 
Right. That's terrifying. It is terrifying. So um, this guy, Jim, meets us, which is the first 100 men and women who are telling this story. And you're about to read the next paragraph. And they're really about to break down the problem and the solution in the first three steps. So why don't you go for that? Okay. We told him what we knew about alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled and he's began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. Can I stop you right there before we get, because it's all about to get crazy. All right. So I want to just go through a couple of things here that are really important. So I underline those first two sentences that you just read. We told him what we knew of alcoholism. That's the Mm -hmm. problem, right? Step one. Right. That's how we talk about our mental obsession, our physical allergy. And the answer we had found that step two, and I circled that, that word we. And the cool thing about Shelly and I being on this episode is me and you together, we have an answer. And right. regardless of where we are in the world, we have an answer. And I got to tell you something so cool, um, something that I can be able to see digitally now because of podcasts and like statistics and stuff is they show mm-hmm. me a map of the world. And there are people in Zimbabwe listening to this podcast. Really? Yeah. There are like 1300 people in like Ireland listening and in England and Iceland. And like, it's crazy because we are all in this together and Mm -hmm. we all have the same solution. And when we focus on this solution and we carry it to the next member of Alcoholics Anonymous that needs it, we have something that is real that we can provide them. But what Jim did was he knew what was wrong because we told him. He knew what the answer was. And the beginning that he made is step three, that decision, I want to do something, but he didn't do anything else. They don't talk about how he did inventory work and how he went out and made amends. He just had the information, right? Right. And that information, we can die with that information. Right. All right. So keep going. All went well for a time. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. To his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had a deep affection. I want to go over a few things here. So I have like triple underlined in red, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And I wrote on the side, we must. And that is referring to how in page 14, they tell us that we must enlarge our spiritual life. Um, and right. they really talk that that actually leads up into my most favorite promise about how if we don't enlarge our spiritual life. We're not going to be able to handle the certain trials and low spots ahead. And right. for me, in order for someone to have a spiritual life to enlarge, we have to do one through nine because you can't get, I could not get to a spiritual life when I was blocked up. I need to do that inventory right. and amends, right? And what they're saying is you doing one through nine is not enough. If you don't enlarge it by doing 10 and 11 every day and carrying the message in 12, that we're not going to be able to make it. And it says to his consternation, which I looked up that word, it means dismay. Like he was shocked about it. He found mm-hmm. himself drunk. And I love how it says he found himself like, he had no clue this was going to happen. Like he just right. woke up somewhere and oh my goodness. And you yeah. know, I hate when people say, oh, I had a slip and I always call them out on it because I love language. And I'm like, look, you know, because you're from Ohio, a slip is black ice in a parking lot, That's right? right? Where you don't know what's going to happen. It happens and you, oh my God, out of nowhere fall. Okay. That's a slip. That's a slip. 
when we pick up a drink, we do it stone cold sober. And so obviously I understand what they're saying. A slip is sobriety losing its priority, but I don't like the language when someone says, oh, I just had a slip. Like they had nothing to do with it. And I want them to understand in an empowering way, not like in a humiliating way, you, this wasn't an accident. You made decisions that place you in a position for alcohol to be a reasonable solution. And what's good about knowing that is that means I can make different decisions that won't place me in that position. Right. Because the drink happens before the drink happens. Thank you. The last thing that happens is the drink. I'm sure in the two and a half years you've been sober, you've watched people leave and it's never a shock because you watch the decisions that they're making that lead up to the last part is the picking up of the drink. Right. 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 The relapse starts well before the drinks pick Absolutely. up. The, the drink is the final culmination, right? And right. so something else I wrote down, um, I, I underlined, we worked with him on each of these occasions. So whenever someone says, Carly, how long do I need to work with somebody that, that keeps relapsing? And the book says right there, we work with them on each of these occasions. It doesn't say until the 16th time or until right. I feel like I have done enough, right? It says we work with them on each of these. So I was told we work with somebody until they're either dead, sober, or they're gone, right? There's no right. time that I get to say, I don't think that they can understand what I'm trying to reach to them. That's not true. Like it's as long as I'm giving them information out of the book, it has nothing to do with me, the teacher. It's just, do they want to do the work? Right. It's up to them. Yeah. But we want to personalize it because it feels like, what am I doing wrong? Like, why does this person keep relapsing? But it's not us because we're not, not us. we're not powerful enough. No, we, we can't fix them. They have to do it. They have to want it themselves. Yeah. All we're doing is carrying the message. What they do with it is not our business. Right. That's right. Beautiful. All right. Keep going to 36. Okay. Yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is the story. I came home to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. Okay. Pause right there. So I underline, I felt irritated. And I wrote on the side mm-hmm. resentment because I want to always identify like when someone's blocked off, which means when I feel irritated about something, which I do pretty much every day, I need to do a 10 step so I can get unblocked. Right. So he's pissed off. Can you imagine owning a business and then having to go to work for somebody else for your old business? Again, you yeah. feel irritated, but if I do an inventory, I can deal with it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Keep going. I had to be a salesman. Yeah. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. Okay, pause. So I underline I had no intention of drinking. I love that he's aware that he's not thinking about drinking. Like, I don't go to a supermarket and go, I had no intention of going to the chicken aisle. I like just don't even think about it because I don't eat right. chicken, right? So it's like, it's a non, it's a non-issue. But right. when you're so aware of what you're not doing, that's when we are obsessed with it. And I wrote above that no mental defense, because remember, like you said, from the beginning, our real problem is in our mind. And if my right. real problem is in my mind, then I can't protect myself from my mind with my mind. Right. Exactly. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar for I had been going to it for years. 
I had eaten there many times during the months I was sober. So do you see I, how he's already planning all of his excuses? Like he already had, oh yeah. like he probably went through it all. I mean, I did that too. I always had it very well thought out in case someone stopped me and asked me, what are you doing? Right. Yep. He had all the reasons laid out. Yep. He's, he's, uh, he's already planted the fact that he's, oh, I've been here sober many right. times, so I can do this. Right. I he, got as he's driving is probably thinking I can go there. I, maybe I'll find a customer for a car there. And he's about to eat, he's about to eat so many sandwiches and drink so much milk. I want you to pay attention to how much milk he actually drinks. It's disgusting. A absolutely. <laughs> I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. So that's the first glass, first glass of milk. First glass of milk. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Two milk, two. two sandwiches. All right, here we go. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. Three milks. Okay, and so Three I wrote on the milk. side, we believe the lie. So he said, I'm fine. I just had a sandwich and a glass of milk. I'll have another sandwich and a glass of milk. I'm fine. You know what? Mm -hmm. I'm going to have another one. Forget the sandwich. Third glass of milk. I bet if I had a little whiskey, it wouldn't even bother me because I've eaten so much food and had so much milk. So he's convincing himself. And that's he something, right? It's something right. that's really important to pay attention to is that we manipulate ourselves. We convince ourselves. I almost convinced myself out of the rumors of Alcoholics Anonymous when I was new because I thought I'm in so much depression and having such a hard time getting this that mm -hmm. I must have a separate outside issue that a can't help me with. And I need to leave a, like I was, these were all lies and stories. I was trying to tell myself, which is why we have a sponsor. So we could tell on ourselves. Right, right, right. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart but felt reassured that I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach excuse. So by the way, they have vaguely sensed, I think from my experience, that's his God voice. And yep. there's a little teeny voice. It's like, I don't think like, you know, when you're about to eat something you shouldn't eat or call someone you shouldn't call or look something yep. up, you shouldn't look, you hear it's not loud. It's, it's just, mm, do you really it's want to that, do that little hint? Yeah. And then you, you tell it to be quiet. Right. So yep. based yep. on the lie that, that he could have a little bit of whiskey and milk, he makes a decision and then he takes action. And that action is what activates the physical allergy. Up to this point, him wanting alcohol was not a craving. It was a mental obsession. Correct. Exactly. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into yet more milk. Four. Yeah. That, <laughs> that didn't seem to bother me. So I tried another five. Oh my God. Could you imagine just sitting down and drinking five glasses of milk? Five glasses of milk. With two sandwiches, five glasses of milk, two ounces of whiskey. Yep. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. You know what I want? I want that on a bumper sticker. Just that one sentence. And every time you see a sponsee like doing something really stupid, you could just give it to her. And it just yeah. like, thus started one more. Yeah. <laughs> one more, one more journey to the asylum. Here was the threat of commitment, the loss of family and position to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. I double underline always caused him. And I yeah. want to remember something here. Something that I learned early on was that I only think of what drinking did for me, not to me. Right. I only remember, I recorded in my brain 
the feeling it gave me, the relief it gave me. And I never remembered the pain and the suffering. And it mm-hmm. only was like this with alcohol. Because when I had macaroni and cheese that was shaped like trains, and I happened mm-hmm. to have a stomach flu, and I didn't know at the same time, and I threw up, I never again in my whole life ate macaroni and cheese that was shaped like trains. Every time I saw it, I was like, I don't want to get sick. But every time I drank, I threw up every single time. And I never looked at it and thought, I probably shouldn't drink today. Yep. Yep. He had much knowledge of himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. So I underlined all of that and I wrote self-knowledge is insufficient. So it's not enough to know it, right? So one one thing that's really important because I love the book and you love the book is to understand this. And I always talk about this. I want to use the book as a tool, not a weapon. I don't need to memorize it and throw it at people's faces, right? Because the information in the book cannot keep me sober if I don't actually take action based on it. Right. Right. So knowing the information is not going to help me. Knowing what's going to happen to me if I don't do it is not going to help me. The only thing that's going to help me is what I do. Right. Exactly. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else. I like underlined all of that. And I wrote in big letters, definition for insanity. You know, we hear in the rooms all the time, you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I like this too, because I'm a visual person. And so what they're telling us here is that we, we don't have enough proportion. We can't see the full picture. I'm only looking through that keyhole. I can't understand. So when I look through the keyhole, I always talk about this, you know, those, um, those, machines that they used to have before there was digital and we we're like those um oh yeah the uh the uh, yeah the viewfinders like you put view a little finders. circle yeah, right viewmaster. Okay. Master. yeah view the viewmaster so my viewmaster was stuck on one picture and the picture was me in a corner in a ball with everyone like throwing stuff at me and my life being horrible because of everyone else and what I couldn't see because my viewmaster was stuck was that all the other pictures were all these decisions of Carly making really bad decisions that caused me to be in the corner with things being thrown at me. And so because I was insane when it came to my truth, I only saw one part of the picture. And it, it wasn't until I did the steps and that someone helped me clear away all the things that were blocking me that we found mm-hmm. out the real reason I was in that corner was because I kept making decisions that placed me there. Right. You may think this is an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. So Shelly does not say drinking there. It says thinking. It says thinking. Right. And it's, it's all about the thinking. Right. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there is inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. I have that all highlighted. Yes, and when you highlight that, what are you talking about? What what about that jumps out to you? It's 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 the fact that we sometimes we can't even explain and why we take that first drink, but if we do explain why, it's some kind of random ridiculous reason. Right? I actually think that there's two kinds of alcoholics. There's the kind like me who had to have the reasons even if no one ever asked me. I had to have them because I want, I was an arguer 
And I always wanted to have a reason why if you cornered me, I could explain to you in very clear terms why I was doing what I was doing. And yeah. then there's the other type that just doesn't care and does it regardless of what you think. And I, mm-hmm. I actually have to say that my, the way that I did it was so painful because it was exhausting because I wish I didn't care. Like I wish I just didn't yeah. care, but I cared so much because I was so afraid of someone cornering me and saying, what are you doing? And then yeah. I wanted to be able to spit back and say, I'm doing it because of this. And if you yeah. could see this then you would understand, right? So, but for me, it was my reasoning, right? My reasoning of why I needed to do it. It failed to hold me in check. And it says here, the insane idea won out. So our drinking is not the problem. It's our thinking. Yeah. That's why we have to do the, the inventory steps. Not because we're mean and we want to make people write inventory. It's because the inventory is what pulls out the thinking. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Our own sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. Thank in you. Some cir- so, oh, yeah, keep going. I want to keep going. Go ahead. Okay. In some circumstances, we have gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like, all those character defects. Yes, and I underlined them and I wrote on the side red flags of spiritual condition and that they block me from God. So when I get any of those nervous, anger, worry, depressed, jealousy, or the like, those are red flags that's, that I'm being blocked off from God. And for me, what I do today is I do a 10 step. When I'm feeling yep. nervous, I'm, I do a 10 step, right? That's resentment. I'm thinking about something over and over. I'm afraid, I'm anxious. I'm worried, I'm depressed, I'm stuck, right? So I need to stop and figure out what is my thinking doing? Yep. But even in this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. We now see that when we began to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious effect uh, thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. So we're going to stop right there. I underlined period of premeditation I wrote in the mind. So everything that we're talking about here is in the mind. We are um, on another episode. We did the jaywalker, which is another whole story. But I am so grateful that you showed up today to do this because this is the most important thing that we need to talk about. Because if we don't understand what our real problem is, then we won't understand why our sponsors are so annoying about doing the inventory all the time. Right. It's the real problem is our thinking. And we need to look yeah. at it and go, how am I being dishonest here? Right, right. Because the thinking, thinking needs to come first. Yeah. And when you, when you uh, correct the thinking, then everything else falls into place. Yes. But for me, I can never see it if I don't do an inventory because when I start, right. I'm angry, I'm afraid, I don't understand why this is happening. And then I start, I get it out. And then I look at it and I go, how am I being dishonest about this? And then right. how am I being selfish, right? For me, my selfish is always, I forget that God's even available. Like I forget right. that God's even on my, you know, Rolodex of places I can reach out to. And exactly. I always need to be brought back to these pages. Thank you so much for doing this and highlighting what you love in the book. And I can't even wait to tell, you know, for this episode to come out. And I'm so excited that I found a new friend. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And I had a great time. If you have any other big book loving friends, you send them my way. I will do that. Okay. Have a good one. 
Hi, North Star Big Book listeners. I just want to let you know that I also have another podcast called In Your Corner Divorce. It is all about co-parenting and focusing on the North Star, which you guys are familiar with. If you have any friends or family that are struggling either post-divorce or about to get divorced, I offer three different services. One is a session called Figuring It Out for people who are struggling and don't know which way to go. The other one is called Nuts and Bolts, and it's all about all the important things that should be put in a shared parenting plan if you want to focus on the kids, the North Star. And the last one is my North Star Divorce Boot Camp, which is basically what we do here. Just a whole lot of digging, work, inventory, refocusing, and really getting to a place where we are only putting all of our energy and intentions into what is best for our children. So please check it out wherever you normally listen, and I would love your support. Thanks. Thanks. 